Good evening, everyone. As the old saying goes, when you gather together with your family and you're all sitting around the dinner table, it's best not to talk about religion or politics. (laughs) Well, as we gather as a church family, we're going all in on both. I hope you're ready. Um, And it really shouldn't be that much of a surprise to us, because the Christian gospel, whether we like it or not, is unavoidably political. Consider the opening of this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Rome. He says that he's writing about the gospel of God regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of King David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or the climactic description of the gospel in Romans 10, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To be a Christian is to believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the risen Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever and ever. Amen. That's an explosive and, yes, political claim. In the book of Acts, in chapter 17, you can read about a group of Christians who are dragged by an angry mob before the city officials. And that angry mob were right when they said that these people are turning the whole world upside down because they claim that there is a new king, not called Caesar, but called Jesus. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the early church, and especially the church in Rome, would have all sorts of questions about how they now relate to Caesar. And it shouldn't surprise us either that Paul addresses these questions here as he does in Romans 13. Because we've been learning over the last few weeks about what it means to live life in view of God's mercy. As those who confess that Jesus is Lord, we've been gathered together into a new fellowship, a body of believers connected together in love and service. But that body life of the church does not happen in a vacuum. A gospel culture doesn't conform to the pattern of this world, but we can't avoid the fact that every gospel culture grows and forms somewhere in the world. Just like our physical bodies, every body of believers is located at a particular place, in a particular time, and under particular circumstances. And so as we live as Christ's body, we will face persecution and experience suffering. We'll come across people in high position and low position. We'll meet those who are rejoicing and those who are mourning and everything in between. And in every case, the gospel creates gospel culture that then spills out as we relate to all of these different people with mercy and kindness and self-sacrificial love. As Simon told us last week, mercy breeds mercy even for our enemies. But what about our government? Whether in the imperial capital or in Sydney, Australia, how does the body of the church treat those who wield human and earthly authority? That's what these verses address and that's what we're going to think about today. And as we do, as always, God's word is surprising and it's challenging. But I've been praying that they will also be for us mind-renewing and transforming. And transforming not just for us, but also for the world around us too. So here's the main point. 
the basic Christian posture towards governing authorities is submission. You really can't miss that, can you? Paul says in verse 1 and verse 5, kind of surrounding his whole argument, he says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And then later at verse 5, therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now, we'll unpack in a second those reasons that Paul gives for submission, but again, let's not miss the point. The basic Christian posture to those who govern us is submission. And the passage itself gives us some helpful ways to think about what that submission to governing authorities means. So in verse 2, the opposite of submission seems to be rebellion against the authorities. In verse 3, the emphasis is on continuing to do what is good rather than what is wrong. Verse 4 says that governments bear the sword. And so submission means that we don't try to wrestle the sword away from governing authorities. Rather, we accept their right to rule and to judge. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's extending the same principles that he's just given about personal conflict and he's applying them to political conflict. See, when we are personally persecuted or harmed by others, Paul urges us to not retaliate or to take revenge into our own hands. In other words, he's saying, don't make yourself judge standing over someone else. Rather, draw near to them with mercy and kindness and leave that sort of judgment to God. And much the same thing is going on here. The body of believers is not to respond to those who govern with rebellion or retaliation or revenge. We don't take judgment into our own hands. In seek, we seek to do good in humble submission, and we leave such judgment to God. So once more, the basic Christian posture towards governing authorities is one of submission. And then in between verses 1 and 5, Paul gives the distinctively Christian reasons for our Christian posture of submission. And I suspect that this is where all of our questions start to come in. But here's what Paul is saying. The rule of the risen Lord Jesus doesn't remove all earthly authority. Rather, it places all earthly authority under the Lordship of Christ. And there's two things going on simultaneously here. On the one hand, Paul is saying governing authorities are legitimate. And on the other hand, what Paul teaches here is relativizing and limiting the role of governing authorities. And so we're going to think about each of those things now. So, look at verse 1 again. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And I think Paul knew that when that was read out for the first time at the church in Rome, there would be a massive double-take. Did I hear that right? So, he says it again. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. He says it three times. We heard him correctly the first time. There is no authority which God has not established. Every authority which exists is instituted by God. And straight away, we're looking for a caveat, aren't we? He means good governments, right? You know, those governments that do the right thing. Well, there's so little wiggle room in what Paul says here. It's 
not surprising that we find ourselves feeling a little claustrophobic, so to speak. And there are important questions we need to consider about incompetent or dangerous or demonstrably evil governments. But let's not miss again the fact that authorities are a good gift given to us by God. See, verse 4 tells us that they bear the sword and are God's servants to punish those who do wrong. And in a world that is wrecked by human sin, that is a really, really good thing. See, there is all manner of evil and injustice in the world around us, and we know that. And sometimes we experience that evil and injustice done directly to us. And of course, as Christians, we hope for God's final judgment when every injustice will be punished and every wrong will be made right. But now, here on earth, governments are given so that some measure of that judgment may also be passed in this life. Human authorities are given by God the right to punish the thief and the abuser and the murderer. They are given by God the right to protect the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. They are given the right to judge those who are dangerously reckless and to punish those who deliberately do wrong. And they're given the right to bear the sword in defending their people from enemy attack. And the main point for Christians to recognise is that we don't stand outside of that judgement. Just because we believe in Jesus as Lord, the church does not and cannot become a law unto itself. Not in Rome and not in Sydney. And this too is really good. Over the last several years, we've seen, haven't we, just horrible abuse come to light, stuff that has happened in Christian churches. And it is right that evil done in our midst would be judged and punished for what it is. If we do wrong, we should fear the right of our governments to punish us. And Paul says, if you don't want to be afraid then keep doing good. This is the legitimate purpose for which God has established human authority. And so we don't reject that authority, we don't rebel against that authority, but we submit to it. But even here, we see that Paul is relativizing the role of human authorities. Governments have this legitimate place in God's purposes, but it is a limited place. Their authority, Paul says, is given for that specific purpose of punishing those who do wrong. The Apostle Peter echoes Paul in his first letter and he adds that the government commends those who do right. This is the biblical view of human authority. They are given by God to punish those who do wrong and to promote what is good. And what's more, Paul refers to the governing authorities as God's servants in doing this task. They are agents of God's wrath and justice, not their own. Once again, the authority is legitimate, but it's not ultimate. It's not right either for governments to become a law unto themselves. And so whatever authority they have, they exercise under God, and that means that they will also be held to account by God. Now, if the legitimacy of authority was surprising to the church in Rome, this here would have knocked their socks off. See, the Roman emperors, they styled themselves as sons of the gods. They considered themselves to be saviours of the world. But here they're told they are servants, whether they recognise it or not. 
And just as an aside, it's a mark of the impact of Christianity upon the world that here in Australia, 2,000 years later, the leader of our country is the Prime Minister, literally the Chief Servant. And that's something we should be very grateful for. And here as well, I think an answer begins to emerge regarding those rulers who do practice evil. And perhaps especially those rulers who are hostile to the Christian church. Because remember, that was certainly the case for the churches in Rome. You know, Paul wasn't writing under some sort of political utopia. The Emperor Nero was hardly a friend of the new Jesus movement. In fact, the whole Bible is filled with a very realistic picture of the failures of human governments. There are oppressive rulers like Pharaoh in Egypt. There are mad tyrants like the kings of Babylon. And even in the kingdoms of Israel, there are wicked kings who abuse and misuse the authority given to them by God. But the story of the Bible is that in every case, when authorities forget they are God's servants, when they set themselves against the Lord, and when they do wicked to the people under their authority, they will be judged by God. Their kingdoms may rise, but always, always they fall. Now, I suspect I'm not the only one who's been troubled by all of the images and the videos and the news that we've been seeing coming out of Ukraine and Russia. That seems like one ruler on an ego trip doing untold damage to millions of people. And not just to his so-called enemies, but to his own people as well. Now, as confronting as it is, and if you think this is hard to hear, it's also hard for me to say, Romans 13 tells us that Putin has been established by God. But it also tells us that Putin is accountable to God. It tells us, and it tells every arrogant dictator, to remember that win or lose, one day they will die. And when they do, there is no invading or conquering the kingdom of God. The theologian Russell Moore was correct when he wrote this week, Vladimir Putin will be humiliated, either in the short run by the brave people of Ukraine, or in the long run by a God who stands over the wreckage of ancient Egypt and ancient Babylon and ancient Rome. See, Romans 13 is in the Bible, and so is Psalm 94. It says this, The Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth. Can a corrupt throne be allied with you, a throne that brings on misery by its decrees? The wicked band together against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my fortress and my God the rock in whom I take refuge. He will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. And so the church even under severe persecution, can refuse to fight back with force because we take refuge in the God who is our fortress. But there is also a message that we need to remember much closer to home. Because one way that we could be conformed to the pattern of the world here is by thinking and acting as if the government is the be-all and the end-all of our society. See, I get the sense that many people around us believe that our government is entirely responsible for our well-being. 
whether it's climate change or domestic violence or the economy or responding to a global pandemic or whatever it is, many of us too might be tempted to believe that the government is ultimately responsible. You know, if things go wrong, the government hasn't done the right thing. They haven't done enough. I heard one commentator say, this is the government that gave us the Northern Beaches outbreak. I'm not not sure if they've got that much power. And it's very tempting for us to believe that if the right people are in charge, if we just have the right government, then everything will be all right. The problem with human governments, however, and I really hate to break this to you, they're human. If we place our hope in politics, our hope will be disappointed. And the problem with disappointed hopes is that it leads us to cynicism and to outrage or some sort of disinterest and detachment. Now, we're probably not going to take up a physical sword against a government that we don't like, but we might take up a social media sword. The words we use in our conversations might be sharp. We might become mocking or mean in the way we speak about those in authority. I heard people laughing at Scott Morrison when he had COVID. Can you imagine? We might resort to nasty political tactics or we might back compromised political candidates because winning is the most important thing. We might start to see everything through the lens of some sort of culture war rather than seeing everything in view of God's mercy. See, when politics becomes everything, it can very quickly become anything goes. Thank God that politics isn't everything. It wasn't under the totalising empire of Rome and it's certainly not in an Australian democracy. Do not put your trust in princes, says Psalm 146 in human beings who cannot save. And so we can fail to submit to governments by completely dismissing their authority, and so Romans 13 says governing authorities are legitimate. But I think the greater danger for us here is that we could fail to submit to our governments, we can fail to show them honour and respect because we put politics on some sort of pedestal and they're always going to fall short of our expectations. And so Romans 13 tells us that governing authorities are relative. And so, what do we do with all this? The final two verses, we're given some really concrete instructions about how to practice submission to those who rule us. So Paul writes, This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. And there's great wisdom here. And it's the same sort of wisdom that we see time and again throughout the Scriptures because God knows that our hearts can very easily be caught up in vicious cycles of bitterness and frustration that can then very quickly consume us. See, we know, don't we, that harbouring hatred in our hearts towards an individual who has harmed us can do more damage to ourselves than it does to them. And so partly what Romans 12 was saying is interrupt that vicious cycle by actively seeking the good, even of those who harm you. And now we see the same wisdom applied here because we can get caught up in vicious political cycles, can't we? Those disappointed hopes we just talked about, they can lead to despair and despair can lead to division. And in our divisions, we can label our political enemies, demonising them and depersonalising them. And if they're demons, then we can justify all sorts of things that we say or do. 
See, in our own sinfulness, we can be dragged into the political world in such a way that we are conformed to that world rather than being transformed to be more like Jesus. And so we take transforming initiative to resist those vicious cycles and do instead what is right and good. So just the simple act of paying your taxes every year is a way of training your heart in that posture of submission to those who govern you. As we exercise our democratic rights and responsibilities, we do that with respect. And as we do, we train our hearts in that posture of submission to those who govern us. And in our conversations, and when we are typing that social media post, or even just in that dialogue that runs in our heads throughout the day, we can do that with humility and with honour. And as we do, we are training our hearts in that posture of submission to those who govern us. See, as we consider these instructions, we must think within the entire context of what's going on at the end of this letter. See, every instruction is given under the umbrella of not conforming to the world, but becoming more like Christ. And so we're told to resist the urge to rebel against the authorities of this age so that we can resist the urge to conform to the pattern of this age. And when we remember that this is written to a church under the rule of an evil Roman emperor we can hear Paul saying, submit to them so that you don't become like them. And we should also hear Paul saying, submit to them so that you can overcome them. See, just remember the very last verse of Romans chapter 12 before Paul begins this section. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It would be tempting to think that Romans 13 is describing some sort of political conservatism. You know, we don't want to rock the boat. Or maybe it's describing a political quietism that we just withdraw from the world. That is not what's going on here. Romans 13 describes the path to political victory. It is the paradoxical but subversive path of suffering for doing good, of love for our enemies and mercy for those who don't deserve it. It is a path that is willing to lose well because it knows that winning isn't everything. It is the path of death and then resurrection. In some cases, that'll be a political death. In many parts of the world, it's a physical death. It is the path that first carries the cross and only then wears the crown. And it is, in short, the path that our Lord Jesus has walked before us. See, I think we see so many themes from Romans 13 as we see Jesus standing before Pilate before he is crucified. And in that situation, Pilate looked like the guy with all of the power. And you know what Pilate thought he did as well. But he was utterly perplexed. Why wasn't Jesus resisting? Why didn't this guy fight back? Why wasn't he at least trying to protect himself? And in response to Pilate's confused questioning, Jesus told him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. And later he said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. See, Jesus did recognise the power that Pilate had, but he relativised it. He only had it because it was from God. And Jesus also declared that he rules an entirely different kingdom. He rules a kingdom where the meek, not the mighty, will inherit the earth. 
And that sort of claim would have looked foolishness to everyone who watched as Jesus hung there dying under an ironic sign that read, King of the Jews. But in view of God's mercy, Jesus, lifted up on the cross, is the King of heaven lifted up in all his glory. What looked like abject defeat was resounding victory. And in the meek submission of Jesus is our magnificent salvation. Pilate was a cowardly ruler and we remember that every time we say the Apostles' Creed. You know how it goes? Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And yet even as we say that, we remember that even cowardly Pilate was God's servant for our good because Jesus overcame Pilate's pathetic evil with his perfect righteousness. And so as we submit to our authorities, and especially as we submit to those governments that we disagree with, we are expressing our faith that the way of Jesus is the way of conquest. We are expressing our hope that like Jesus, our suffering will always be vindicated in resurrection. And so we persevere in loving God and loving our neighbour. It's not win at all costs, it's love at all costs. And we do this together with our brothers and sisters in the church. And we trust that a gospel culture of faith, hope and love, visible and distinctive in the world, will be used by God for the good of the world. I think the bottom line of what Paul is saying here is if you want to see the world change, then as the church, be the church. And just to finish, there are three things I think we commit ourselves to politically trust in the power of gospel proclamation, gospel prayer, and gospel practice. And so as a church, we sheathe our political swords, whether physical or metaphorical. We embrace the fact that we are not agents of God's wrath, but agents of his mercy. And we proclaim the otherworldly kingdom of Jesus boldly and openly. We don't primarily speak in the public square about Christian morals, though sometimes we might do that. But mostly we're speaking the Christian gospel and we call people to repentance and faith in Christ. And as we do that, we pray. Not because we're resigned to doing nothing or because we're ambivalent to evil and and injustice, but because we trust more in God's power to intervene than in our own. So we pray that our leaders will trust in Jesus. We pray that they would act for the sake of truth and justice. And as we are confronted by evil rulers, we pray that they would repent of their pride and their malice and that they would be frustrated in their plans and desires. There are actually some pretty hectic psalms that you can pray, asking that God would judge evil rulers in the world, that he would heap burning coals on their heads, that they would fall into a trap of their own making. Something you could do this week. (laughs) And we practice the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. We give ourselves to the humble service and love of our brothers and sisters and we show countercultural generosity and hospitality and we extend surprising blessing and mercy. And as we do that in the body of believers, we show our governments and we show our fellow citizens that there is another game in town. And so instead of greed and consumerism, we practice gratitude and contentment. Instead of satisfying our every fantasy, we practice self-control and faithfulness. 
Instead of a constant striving for success, we rest in the finished work of Christ. Instead of constantly trying to, you know, get that next step up on the ladder, we constantly look for ways that we can step down in service of the lowest and the least and the lost. Instead of division over our political differences, we maintain the bond of unity, keep the peace in the church. Instead of hoping for that next great leader who will fix all of our problems, week by week we confess one Lord, Jesus Christ, who has forgiven us and who is fixing us up from the inside out. And as we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, God may use our witness to renew the mind of the culture around us. See, our body life will show that there is a different way to live in this world. And we may see people around us transformed as they are drawn to the message of the gospel and to faith in Jesus. Now, we might not have the slightest clue how God will use our little body to change the world. And our life together may feel small and insignificant, but this is ground zero for God's transforming work in the world. And many may look at us and think, proclamation, prayer... That's naive, that's not how you do politics. But then again, a crucified king never looked very impressive in the first place. So I thought I'd just finish by reading these words from Peter Lightheart, and they've been the most encouraging thing I've read this week, and I hope they might be for you as well. He said, You might feel invisible, brothers and sisters, but that's an optical illusion. You're participating in the biggest project imaginable. You're joining with millions of others around the world in growing the body of Christ. Through your witness and labour, a new world is taking form. You're fighting the battle of the ages. You're constructing the city of God among the cities of men in order to transform the cities of men that they might become more like the cities of God. Dear friends, nothing is small in the kingdom of God.